Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Geek Warning from the Escape Collective. I'm James Huang, and for the first time in quite a while, I'm sitting here in the Boulder Groupetto next to our resident pro mechanic, Zach Edwards. Hi, Zach. Hello. And joining us remotely from Sydney, Australia, is tech editor Dave Rome. Hi, Dave. Hello. Ronan is sadly out sick today, and Kaylee is still somewhere in France swimming. Uh, I believe he's swimming laps in an Olympic-sized pool full of rosé. So we'll just have to check back with Kaylee when it comes up for air. Anyway. If there's any truth to that, I want to be there. Yeah, sounds <laughs> hope, lovely. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure it'll be on an Instagram story somewhere. Uh, Zach, it's been a while since we've had you on, but as usual, things look pretty busy here in the shop. Uh, I'm, I have to say, though, I'm a little surprised to see a certain something on your personal bike hanging up on the wall there. Is I, I believe I see a, a Ceramic Speed OSPW on your bike. You do. Which it's, seems very un-Zach-like. Saving all the lots. <laughs> marginal gains on a gravel bike. It, it's like it's like your bike is self-propelled now. Yep. I barely have to pedal. Mm. Uh, Dave, I noticed on your Instagram stories that mm. you, had a, uh, you had a little shipment come through recently. Yeah, yeah, it's a, a new tool that I paid for a few months ago. Uh, I'd, I'd pre-ordered some tools from Noble Wheels in the UK, and they have finally been made and, and shipped, and it's, yeah, exciting new tools day. So, yeah, new uh, bearing extractors from Noble Noble Wheels. Very, very fancy. To add them to your, your assortment of, like, your drawer full of bearing extractors already. Got to collect them all. Mm, indeed. Okay. <laughs> One of these days, Dave, I'm going to make it down there and check out your workshop. Yeah, yeah, it's it's not large, but it's uh, very um, densely packed. Yeah, densely packed. <laughs> okay, well, we've got a pretty broad mix of things to talk about on today's show. Uh, we're going to talk tire sizes at the tour. Uh, Factor has got a fancy new climbing bike. SRAM's brought its uh, fancy transmission electronic mountain bike shifting technology down to the GX level. And a startup in Australia has an interesting proposal that promises to bring non-destructive carbon fiber test methods, maybe down to, maybe even down to the bike shop level. We'll see. Uh, And then as usual, we'll see what's on the minds of our podcast crew this week. And we'll wrap up with some, well, hopefully a useful public service announcement that will hopefully save some of you some money on expensive drivetrain components. Uh, But first, a word from this week's sponsor, which is once again, our own Escape Collective members. Geek Warning is brought to you each week ad-free because it's 100% funded by our membership dues. Uh, being an Escape Collective member not only gets you full access to everything on the site, as well as the ability to leave comments, but also an invitation to our members-only Discord channel, live podcast recordings, and not to mention that warm and fuzzy feeling you get when you know that you helped build this publication the way that you want to see it. So if you're already a member, thanks so much for the support. If you like what you're getting in return, please consider telling your friends about us so that maybe they can join too. And if by some small chance you are not happy with what you're getting, tell us why, because we're all ears over here. Full memberships start at just 12 bucks a month US per month, uh, or you can save a bunch by going the annual route. And if you want to just quietly read in your own corner and not really participate, there's also now a $7 per month monthly subscription. Uh, whichever way you decide, head over to escapecollective.com to sign up. And we also want to give a special shout out to some of our lifetime members who each played a big role in getting this whole operation off the ground earlier this year. This time around, I'm going to this time around, I'm going to call out some industry folks who apparently want to lend a hand to getting Escape Collective off the ground, including David McQuillan, Knife of Sufferlandria, and the founder of the Sufferfest. We want to thank the folks at RouteWorks, makers of that super slick handlebar bag with the flip top lid, built in computer out, and nifty attachments for lights and cameras. Uh, Kurt Hoy, 
at Boss E-Bike Systems. No explanation needed for what they do. Brian Bernard at Cervelo and Tyler Jordan, one of the co-founders of one of my personal favorite cycling clothing brands, Seven Mesh out of Canada. So thanks to all of you and the rest of the Escape Collective Lifers crew for the assist. And now on with the show. All right, first up in the news segment this week, uh, let's talk about this new Factor O2 VAM. So Factor describes this as, quote, the world's fastest climbing bike, unquote. Although I would say that would depend on the rider, don't you? Uh, But as you'd expect, it's very light, supposedly just about 730 grams for a 54 centimeter frame. And Factor says it's 35% stiffer on average than the previous O2 VAM. And as is the trend these days, Factors has also given the O2 VAM a bunch of aero tube shapes. The uh, company says it saves 12 watts of rider effort at 48 uh, kilometers per hour. So it's still kind of an all-rounder, especially since it's also supposedly kind of comfy. Uh, cable routing is fully, expe- fully internal, as you'd expect. Factors using its own uh, black ink, one-piece integrated carbon bar and stem. There's actually an integrated seat mast on this thing. There's clearance for 32 mil tires, although it's optimized for 28s. Uh, you got a T47 asymmetrical threaded bottom bracket. Factor's even offering the thing in seven sizes, including four different fork rakes, which is actually quite impressive. Uh, so about the only thing that doesn't sound great about this thing is the price, which starts at a whopping 6300 bucks for the frame set. Ouch. Ooh. What do we think here? I mean, my initial question that I didn't see in any of the press release... Can you sit on the top tube of this one? Because the previous O2 VAM had a big sticker that said, don't sit on the top tube. Oh, you know, I actually don't know because, well, and that would be particularly interesting in this particular case because uh, the top tube on this new O2 VAM is like super, super thin. I'm guessing at least like in terms of height. Well, I mean, I, I went to, well, so we're in Boulder, Colorado and Factor actually just opened a, uh, a, like a factory showroom here in town. And I was over there Monday evening checking out that new bike, and I don't recall there being a sticker on the top tube saying, do not sit here. So hopefully you can sit there, although even if you did sit there, I can't imagine it'd be all that comfy of a place to sit. Yeah. I mean, the top tube's not designed to be a lawn chair, but it's still a common place for you to rest a thigh while waiting at a set of lights or something like that. Indeed. Indeed. The fact that, yeah, I mean, Factor, they're not the only ones producing a bike that has a top tube that may crack if you sit on it but they're obviously one of the one one of the few to have actually announced it and said please don't do this because it won't be a warranty uh so yeah it's i don't know i think given the frame weight um i'd be surprised if you can now sit on it Hmm. well in terms of aero as i said like they they did infuse a bunch of aero tube shapes into this thing and factor saying that it is only five watts slower than the astro vam um at that same speed, I presume, 48k an hour. Um, although I have to say, it it was a little conspicuous to me that um, when Israel Premier Tech rider Mike Woods won on top of uh, Puy de Dome the other day, he was riding an Ostrovam and not this bike, which is... That's the, that's the thing, though, is like, no matter how light this bike is, for the World Tour guys, like, there's a minimum weight. So, like, if it's, if you have an aero bike at 6.8 kilos and you have a climbing bike at 6.8 kilos, even if the climbing bike is marginally aero like why would you not choose the full aero bike over the a little bit aero bike more speed yeah. um so and I, I did mention that ronan's not here today however he did just recently receive a factory test bike um or i should say he did just receive a new o2 vam test bike from factor um 
And he's on a 56 and he said with pedals and the fancy new carbon spoked wheels that Black Ink also introduced with this bike, his bike, I think he said came out at like 6.3 kilos. So it was well uh, below six, the UCLA. 6.7 is what he said, but it was... Uh, 6.7 was it? 6.7, I believe. But it's uh, with Asioma pedals, which are, you know, a, one, one of the heavier options. Um, yeah. So, um, and that's with SRAM Red as well, which again... You know, it's a high-end group set, but it's not exactly a super light group set if you're comparing against stuff from a few years back. So, uh, I mean, that's 6.7 kilos with pedals is is pretty light. So, so still a little room to play with. Yeah, and that would probably be with sensible tires and all that. So, I mean, it's it's not a it's definitely not a weight weenie build, and it's still coming under the UCI limit. So, yeah, dare I say it's uh, I can kind of understand why the team might still be on the Ostro. I mean, it's one they're used to it, but also it's the Ostro is a very lightweight bike in itself. So it's sort of there's probably only 150 to maybe 200 grams difference between these two. So I think it's, it's actually only 100. In fact, 100 grams. Okay, well there you go. I think it's only 100 grams for the for the lightest for the lightest Ostro Vam. So it's just so interesting. Like for racing, I don't know why you would not choose the Ostro, right? Like. The O2, you're going to have to add weight to it to make it legal. I think like riding a really light bike is super fun, mm. but then that's not necessarily the racing crowd, right? So like it's interesting you they're marketing this as like saving X amount of watts at this speed. Like the people that care about the watts aren't the people that are buying the 14 mm. pound bike, right? Like they're well, they just want a fun light bike to go do hill climbs and ride in the mountains and stuff i guess but i guess for the people who really are going after the weight weenie bikes i mean ultimately they want weight weight weenie bikes because they want to feel like they're going uphill faster right and i guess if you can provide that low weight and also give them some dose of arrow presumably without taking away from the weight and stiffness and so on then i mean that would only be a plus right i mean i i, I totally get what you're saying zach and my guess is factor maybe is also hearing what what people are saying also because uh, another change on this bike relative to the uh, the other or like it's the previous generation O2 VAM is uh, factor has actually increased the stack height on this thing by uh, ten millimeters pretty much across the board and that was apparently due to uh, owner requests. Um, I can't imagine the team would have ever asked for 10 mils more stack. So I think that may be sort of a, a tacit uh, acknowledgement that this bike is kind of more at, you know, kind of more favored by higher end enthusiasts as opposed to like world tour racers. It was hinted to me that I may have been partially responsible for that increase of, of stack. And I'm, I'm very proud of that. Um, <laughs> uh, so yeah, it's uh, anyway, it's good to see. Well done, Dave. Well done. Mm. Uh, what do we think of the integrated seat mast here? Or just the fact that there's an integrated seat mast in general? I don't mind it. I, I think like it, it makes a lot of sense from uh, the point of view of uh, being better control sorry, being able to better control the ride quality of a bike. Especially the you know, the flex through the seat mast, the the fact that you don't have all that overlapping material between a seat post and a seat tube. Uh, I actually quite like it and i know it's something that the industry has done before and it kind of went away for practicality reasons and it's slowly coming back um but yeah i i really don't mind it i'd say the only downside is and zach's probably all too aware of this is when you travel or when you have to pack a bike you kind of have to get pretty specific with the case you use or take the bike very much apart yeah, so yeah, yeah. in the bag yeah. i mean with the way bikes 
higher end road bikes now are like fully integrated with the cabling and everything. Uh, this, it definitely seems like traveling with any of those bikes is already kind of a pain. So why not make it a little bit more of a pain? Like mm-hmm. what difference does it make? Yep. Yeah. So yeah, I think that's, that's the barrier, but, uh, you know, as long as you, uh, pick a 54 centimeter or, or below, no matter what size you actually need, <laughs> then I think it's no problem when you travel. Excellent. Well, then, you know, for the taller riders, you can just get these super, super, super tall seat mass topper. Yeah. Or just run it like as if you're Mahoric and the dropper post <laughs> the whole time. <laughs> yep. Faster totally. Totally. If you ride a small bike. Yeah. Uh, one thing I have to say that I'm really happy to see on that bike is that they have, well, as I mentioned, seven frame sizes, but also that they're using four different fork rakes. Uh, mm. And I have to imagine that would be influenced by uh i don't know he's either lead engineer graham shrive Mm -hmm. over there Mm -hmm. uh graham came from cervello and cervello was a company who kind of was famously known for running a whole bunch of fork rakes on their sizes to get the handling that they wanted so uh if this is if if this has come about as you know part of graham's influence then good on you graham we're happy to see that because obviously making four different forks is not well, it's four times as expensive as using the same one across the board. Yeah, I'd say it's without doubt his influence. And and yeah, I mean, there's, there's he, you know, you, you'd only do it if you truly believe that it makes a, a valuable difference. Because as you say, it's it's the most expensive way to do it is to keep creating different fork rakes for, for the same bike. So yeah, he has, to, he has to strongly believe that it makes a difference in order to justify it. And uh, yeah, it is nice to see. But it does, you know, it's obviously absorbed into the, what was it, 6300 $6,300 for the frame set. Yeah, that's pretty high. Is that, like, like, is that frame only or is that like frame set module? Like, so cockpit and uh, seat post it, and all of that. I think it's normally a module. I believe, it's, I believe it's a module. So it's so, not yeah. like terrible. And they I mean, give you like a sort of speed like, bottom bracket. Compared to like an S-Works or something, then you're still buying the stem and the handlebar. Right. And that right. kind of like... Yeah. So know. it's it's not like it's outrageously expensive or outrageously more expensive than some other stuff out there, but um no. it's 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 definitely not necessarily like a value play either. No. no. I mean, it's not it's not trying to be. I mean Fact is like effectively a consumer direct company, so they've for the last few years they've sort of played that that space where they they go after trying to be the most high end option, but sort of priced underneath like an S works traditionally. So um it's kind of sounds like they're still sticking around that sort of price point and they they give a few like sneaky value adds like you know the the headset ceramic speed the bottom bracket ceramic speed uh and that's those are the sort of parts like at least for the bottom bracket that's a you know probably a 300 plus dollar part that you don't get with other frame set modules so sure yeah so it's not it's not bad value when you compare it against other very high end and pricey bikes i mean at least in the u.s factor does have a bunch of dealers um so like they're not really a consumer direct brand, but I think it is also worth noting that they do actually make their own stuff. So I would probably say they're most akin to like Giant, for example, mm-hmm. who has a traditional dealer network, but also manufactures their own things. Um, so I would guess if nothing else, that maybe gives Factor either uh, certainly a little bit more control than how the stuff is manufactured and maybe a little more leeway in terms of what they get to do. Um but I would imagine that they get to keep a little bit more of that margin for themselves too, because there's certainly in a mo- layer that's in most gone markets there. for sure. Yeah, most markets are consumer direct. I think the US is kind of a, a unique beast for them. So either way, uh, it looks like a pretty interesting bike. I'm looking forward to hearing Ronan's thoughts on it uh, once he's back on the mend and feeling a little bit more, a little bit healthier. Um, I dare say he's probably pretty well suited to evaluating how well this bike goes uphill. Mm. 
probably, well, I shouldn't say probably, without a doubt, he is the best suited for anyone on staff to determine how well this bike goes uphill. Do you think, do you think he'd be able to realize if it really is the fastest climbing bike? <laughs> uh, I'd imagine he'd sure be willing to give it a shot. Yeah. Yeah. I, I yeah, I'm probably the wrong person to test that because I wouldn't want to go up the same hill as many times to find out. So yeah, I mean, I would hop on it and be like, "Yep, I'm still slow. This bike is terrible." <laughs> so <laughs> but anyway, we will wait to hear more from Ronan hopefully soon on that. Uh, moving on to the next bit of news, though. Um, speaking of Ronan, he measured a whole bunch of tire sizes when he was at the tour, and uh, there were a few. I guess pretty big trends that we noticed over there. So one is that tubulars really are pretty much nearly extinct as far as the pro peloton goes with, uh, he found only Cofidis was still using them across the board. Just mm. that, the, that, just that one team. Uh, and then the they second, won on them, hmm? they won on them. They did. They did. Still fast. I mean, they were never really that slow. No. Um, anyway, and, and then two other big major trend, uh, Tires have gotten really big in the Pro Peloton. So he found a few teams running 25 mil printed width tires that pumped up to 27 mil on the kind of the new generation of water rims. Uh, most of the teams that he found, though, were running 28 mil tires with actual widths closer to 30 or 31. So I know the industry has been pushing for this sort of increased tire size for quite a while for a variety of reasons. Uh, and you know, general consumer bikes certainly seem to be going this way, have been for a little bit. Um, but considering how pro riders have historically been pretty averse to big changes, I'd say this still seems like a big deal. Mm. Yeah, I mean the the tires on um, Pajakar's bike surprised me. Thirty one millimeter measured. I mean that's that's wide. Like that's that's big, you know. And for anyone following the tour, he's he's doing well. So um, yeah, I mean it's that for me is is kind of all the the evidence you need that. You know, the the new movement that, James, you've been reporting on for probably, I'm going to guess, seven, eight years now, talking about wider tires and in performance sense. Uh, I'd say we're we're well and truly there now, and it's hard to deny. I mean, I think, too, though, like, what, like how he races, right, is, like, so much more aggressive than not that long ago, like, Froome in the Sky era, right? Like, they yeah. were very robotic riding on the climbs at such a high pace that basically no one could attack. And he is attacking on the downhills, attacking in the corners and just really, really racing his bike and having the confidence of a big tire that you can just dive bomb into a corner. Mm-hmm. It, it adds up to be a lot, right? Like you don't, on the 25 or 23 mil tire, you're not going to be ripping stuff like he is and how Vanderpool is and all these bike racers now. Yep. You know, we hear, we hear a lot uh, from certainly from skeptical readers and listeners and that sort of thing about how, you know, they feel like the bike industry sort of just pushes things on their sponsored riders and teams, just, you know, whether or not it's actually better. But I think this is, I, I really feel like this is a situation where, you know, maybe the industry was pushing this trend on the riders, but this seems like the sort of thing where if it w- actually wasn't better, we would still be seeing riders on 25 mil tubulars. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I don't I just I simply don't think we'd see the likes of the yellow jersey contenders with some of the biggest teams running these if they genuinely didn't believe it was a performance advantage. Like the these teams have very large budgets from their main sponsors that they don't need to take the money from say Envy 
in order to make the team succeed and make the team sustainable. I mean, they they have those partnerships with these products because they believe there's a performance advantage. Uh, and if there weren't, they'd, they'd be on another product. You know, there's there's dozens of brands that would happily give them the product. It's just, uh, yeah. So for me, I, I think we're we're there. I think there's enough proof now that's yeah, 25s are dead and you know, the new future or the current future and the previous future is is wider tires for performance. I just find it particularly interesting that, you know, whereas people, a lot of us were thinking that 28 were, was kind of as far as it would go. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when you factor in the, the, the modern rim widths now, the fact that we're looking at measured tire widths at like 30, 31 at the tour. Yeah. It's still, even just a few years ago, it it seemed like that would almost be completely unheard of. Like it just seems like you never would have seen that. Right. Oh yeah, that was a Paris yeah. Bay size. Yeah, yeah. I I I do think like obviously there's there's going to be times when the narrow tires still are faster, like in in certain sure, time trial conditions and all that. But yeah, I think for general road riding, I think I think we're we're seeing something. I guess for me, what what surprises me is from the tubeless sense of of things. It's just the the adoption rate was crazy quick. I mean, it's exactly as quick as you and I had speculated on and say the likes of Josh Portner had speculated on. I did an article with Josh Portner, I'm going to say three or four years ago, where he had said five years from now, every single team will be on tubeless. And at that point, nobody was on tubeless. Like, I think Quick Step was maybe experimenting with it, but not really. Like, they were kind of, it was kind of almost like a specialized marketing maneuver at that point. Uh and yeah, I mean, look at the adoption rate. Like we're, what, one team left that isn't on either a clincher or a tubeless and the tubeless tire technology, like there seems to be some stuff starting to come out or, or on its way to the market that could be game changing again. So yeah, it's, I don't know. I, I, I'm always fascinated by the, the uptake of this stuff and the resistance from consumers as well. Uh, you know, how many fight it until it's right in their face and then and then admit defeat well again it's just sort of like that level of skepticism right like the the idea that like the man is kind of pushing this stuff on them Mm -hmm. when 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 they already know better and whatever Mm. but this certainly seems like one of those situations where you know if you can have if you can have still like competitive weight and aerodynamics in that sort of wider tire and rim setup then clearly there aren't really big downsides to it yeah i mean yeah there's definitely a tipping point right like you're not going to see people out at the tour de france on a 38 mil slick road tire right no no right but but i think that's it it seems like things have pretty have stabilized pretty quickly Mm -hmm. um they and certainly in, in in the stuff that i've written you know on my on my regular everyday road bike i'm i am running 28 mil tires that pump up to about 30 31 or so yeah did i um and i don't feel the need to go any wider for a bike that basically only sees tarmac um and past that i I just don't really feel like i'm getting anything out of it yeah um it's obviously a different story for my bike that i use on like dirt roads and stuff like that but but they're not doing that so uh this seems to be a kind of i mean I don't know. I feel like this is going to stay like this for a while now. See, though, that's what I think will be interesting. Like, it'll be interesting to see what's next. I don't think everyone's going to be like, well, we've all decided 28 mil tubeless is the best option. Like, it's still a competitive sport. Everyone's going to be looking to, like, what's the next, latest, greatest, most competitive advantage. And I think that'll be the interesting thing. Like, obviously, like, there'll be tire technologies and stuff, but just I think it'll be interesting to see what. Yeah. 
I don't know, five or 10 years from now, what world tour is riding. Yeah. I think, I think for me, the next, the next frontier is kind of a return to aerodynamic focus, right? Like we've sort of seen a lot of brands sort of take priority away from that and being, and focus on things like rolling resistance and weight optimization and tire support. And I think now that James, like, as you say, James was kind of settling on this, this new agreed upon with, in a sense, like they've found this, this nice balance point. Uh, and I think they're, there'll probably be renewed focus on on really trying to aerodynamically optimize for that width because there are a few brands that do it, but there are a lot that are quite dated in that sense. Well, we're kind of already seeing that a little bit on the tire front too because um, there are, and it's just a couple of brands right now, but um, there are definitely a couple of brands that offer what they describe as like aero profile tires. Mm. Um, and it, the way that the casings are designed these tires are still basically like a normal width, but they're like a little pointier, mm. so to speak. Um, so, and you know, these companies are saying that these tires are a little bit more aerodynamic than just a regular round profile. And you know, yeah, th- that, that probably is the place where we see another, an- another step change. Um, like I said, I don't, I don't really see that road tires are going to get much wider than they are now. Like it does seem like we've kind of reached a happy medium, but I, I certainly can see that tire companies are going to continue to optimize that shape to try and cut through the wind a little bit better. Yeah. Um, I mean, I personally don't love how a lot of those tires handle because they, mm. to me, they feel kind of tippy. Um, I would think more like the tire to rim junction is going to be more important than, trying to make a pointy tire yeah well we see that already too i mean uh, i talked to the folks at goodyear at eurobike and one of the things that they pointed out was that they uh, you know they apparently don't make a huge deal out of this but especially with a lot of modern road rims going with a hookless format um goodyear they said that their bead is shaped such that it has a particularly smooth transition between the uh, between the rim and the tire, and that's something Ronan went over to check, and he seemed to agree. Um, and I feel like that is something that we're going to start seeing too. So I, mm. it, it seems like the size is, you know, p- people are pretty happy with it. But yeah, I mean, think I, I would agree that we're going to start seeing some more little aero optimizations here and there, and it seems like the natural direction. Yeah, yeah. Everything repeats in the bike industry, so I mean, <laughs> it's just yeah, it's it's forever progressing, but it it sort of does it in. Uh, categorical waves i guess you know like the the whole industry will focus on rolling resistance for three years and get that to a point and then and then one brand an influential brand will will find aerodynamics and then ever that's the next hot thing that everyone wants and no one wants to be behind on so i think yeah i think we're about to see a return back to error anyway i'm still waiting for purple anno and cnc and cnc machining to, to make their way to the road bikes you you can have that you just you just have to have round tubes and nine nine plus kilos. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, moving on from road bikes, uh, let's let's head over to some mountain bike news here because uh, uh, SRAM has just announced a new GX level version of its mountain bike transmission stuff. Uh, Dave, what's the story here? Yeah, I mean, if you if anyone's seen the the previous trans, transmission stuff that came out in March of this year uh, at like the XX and XO levels, uh, same same, just cheaper <laughs> is is probably the easiest way to put it. Uh, I mean, it's yeah, it's one by twelve speed group set. It's kind of locked. It's kind of a proprietary system. It's using uh, SRAM's UDH, the Universal Derailleur Hanger mount on the frame. So you do need a bike that has the a udh mount or derailleur hanger 
Uh, and yeah, it's it's got all the same technology as the higher end stuff. It's just uh, as SRAM does, they they trickle that technology down with with sort of lower cost and heavier materials, sometimes cheaper manufacturing methods, and and that's what GX achieves. It saves approximately five hundred dollars versus uh, the model above it, the XO, and doesn't add a huge amount of weight. A lot of the weight's actually in the cassette and crank. Uh, the derailleur itself is like there's less than ten grams difference. Um, yeah, from a feature point of view, uh, there, there isn't much difference, but the, the GX does actually have a different construction now. So it's, uh, the battery's more tucked away. It's kind of tucked into the derailleur. Uh, and that derailleur construction method is, is different to what it was before. Previously, it was kind of that, the T-mount that sort of sandwiches the, the UDH dropout. That was sort of one machined in one piece. Uh, and the GX moves more to like a, a two piece bolted up design, which, surely is cheaper to produce yeah and the fact that the rear derailleur is so has such a minimal weight penalty it's like like 10 grams or something like that isn't it mm. like it's it's pretty yeah, surprisingly minimal and that's with a heavier steel cage and you can yeah. just put a carbon you know carbon lower cage assembly onto that and probably get it even lighter than the, it, an xo derailleur but if anything i would almost think from a consumer standpoint i'd almost want the gx rear derailleur for one, for that more durable cage if you hit it on something. Um, but two, the way that that battery is now tucked in more into that T-type mm. mount. And you can replace the battery the latch, little latch Yeah. So like those are all really, really good things. I mean, maybe they'll roll those changes into the XO and XX level at some point. It seems like that would be a good place to do, a good thing to do. Um, I mean, they'd have to redesign the rear derailleurs to some extent, but... Um, but anyway, unless you are like hyper, hyper weight weenie and trying to save every, every last little gram, uh, the GX rear derailleur, at least anyway, seem like that would be my pick actually. Yeah. Um, but like you said, the, the crank and the cassette are definitely heavier. I mean, the cassette's like a hundred grams or so heavier than the XX SL, uh, cassette, something like that. And then, yeah, probably. Yep. And the crank is kind of heavy. It's like a, it's, it's similar to the XO, except that window that's in the XO crank is now filled in. Um, the crank said it's like 700 something grams. So it's yeah. not particularly, and I think light. it's running a steel chain ring as well, isn't it? So there's, uh, there's an easy win. Yeah. If, if it's true. definitely stamped, not machined a chain ring. Either way, yeah, the crank okay. set's not particularly light. So like, that's certainly some place where you could save some weight. Yeah. yeah. It just feels like a massive OE play. Like no bike oh, company yeah. is going to stock Shimano anymore. They're like three generations of SRAM mountain bike drivetrains. Like they're just lingering back there still. Not to say it's not good stuff, but it's just like, SRAMs can't this yeah it's just so far ahead than what they're doing yeah I, one 100 percent. Uh, I, I mean and from an oe play like talking present day like you really have to have a, a mountain bike that you've bought within the last two to three years in order to actually run this stuff because that's how long the udh system's been around for uh so yeah it's it's not like there's a huge aftermarket that are, are keen to upgrade their drivetrains because there's a lot of mountain bikes out on the market that simply cannot be used with this system right right um, but man, I mean, I, I would bet we're going to see an awful lot of complete bikes spec with GX transmission. All of them. Oh yes. Like there's, yeah. who, would, <laughs> who would stock Shimano now? And, and the sad thing is, I mean, the Shimano mechanical stuff, it still it works, works really, really great. well. Like it works really well, but the perception is that is kind of old and outdated. And from a consumer standpoint, it, it, yeah, if you're looking at the shiny new thing versus the you know, reliable and dependable older thing. I mean, you're going to kind of be attracted to the shiny new thing. I think that's just sort of the nature of it. Right. Oh yeah. I mean, also too, like even no matter how good the Shimano is, you know, that 
if you're buying a bike now with that, you know that within probably, I mean, I could have said this like two years ago at this point, but like you would like to think like within the next year, Shimano is going to come out with a new group set. And then your group set is now this old one that is our, like is outdated. Right. So like, why would you buy and invest in a product that, you know, they're working on a replacement for already. Right. Question. I've been looking at e-mountain bikes and would you rather get GX transmission or Shimano's new like XT link drive, link glide, which is mechanical 11 speed, but designed for like kind of e-bike abuse, oh. durable cassette. Good question. I mean, this, this is an interesting thing because like e-bike, like SRAM had an e-bike drivetrain a few years ago that was, yep. it was an eight speed or something. Yeah. Because, it like it's, it has a motor. Why do you need all these gears? Like, mm-hmm. just let it zoom you up the hill. Why do I need to shift and have the perfect cadence? Like, it has a motor. Yeah, that's a good question, Dave. I don't, I don't think I have an answer for that one. Well, and and just like with the the SRAM stuff, that that link, um, that that yeah, Shimano was calling that link link glide still, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, that that Shimano e bike specific group set. That one was also designed with a new shifter that did not allow for. I think it was only. I think it only allowed one shift in either direction at a time, didn't it? Mm, I believe so. Um, I haven't ridden it yet, but yeah. But that was for the same reason why transmission, uh, why the transmission multiple shifts are a little are definitely slower, is because when you're dealing with that extra torque, you want to be able to make sure that the chain's fully engaged before moving on to the next bracket. Um, so yeah, what I, what I. I, I honestly don't know which one of those mm. two I'd prefer. I mean, and it, yeah, I, I haven't tried it, but I think it would almost yeah. be a matter of personal preference. Yeah, and it's a, it's a hard choice because like the on e-bikes now, SRAM's equipping uh, its transmission in some cases with like a wired battery, which is really yep. cool. So you've, yep. you don't have a, a, a battery that you need to charge. It's just it's this, little, uh, this little charger that clips into the derailleur that has a wire that runs into your central battery. So it's kind of a, a fully integrated system now, which is, is neat. Very slick, for sure. Mm. Uh, to be clear, this new GX transmission stuff still is not inexpensive. Uh, I no. think it's, what, like 1100 US, yeah. something like that, mm-hmm. for, uh, what is it, Kurt, Kurt, shifter, yeah. crank, cassette, rear derailleur chain? Yep. Um, so that doesn't include brakes and that all that other stuff. Um, so yeah, anything but inexpensive. Um, but as you said, Dave, it does, you know, certainly having, having used all three versions of transmission at this point now, it does seem to shift exactly the same. Um, and yeah, for my money, that's, that's what I would go with personally. Yep. I, I would, the other thing that GX showed me, which I'm, I'm kind of somewhat fond of, or at least intrigued by is the fact that they changed the construction method of that rear derailleur kind of bodes well for them being able to trickle, to trickle the tech down, maybe another step further. I mean, SRAM is awfully good at tricking me down their their tech from the top down, especially with the electronic stuff. Yeah. Um, so like we just saw uh, now like a fourth tier uh, for their electronic road components. Now we've got Red, mm-hmm. Force, Rival, and now Apex. Um, so now for transmission, we've got XX, XO, GX, and then NX maybe? Yeah. Yeah. Let's hope they don't do an SX, but uh, NX <laughs> will accept don't use the wood screws in the trailer for the limit <laughs> screws. <laughs> yeah, SX, I would say, is universally not our favorite over here. They tried. Yeah. I don't think it's anyone's favorite. They, no. Yeah, they, they tried. It's okay. You can't, you can't win them all. Um, yeah. All right. Well, uh, I, like, 
as I mentioned, I've got that stuff right now. And um, Dave, you posted kind of like a little overview article just yesterday, mm. I think, was it? Um, yeah. And yeah, so head over to escapecollective.com and check that out. And yeah, I'll have a full review of the group set pretty soon. Just as, you know, once I've had, I feel like a little bit more testing on it. So I feel like I'm getting pretty close. Um, but speaking of testing... Uh, I want to talk about carbon fiber testing because this is a Mm. big topic on today's show. Um, So we do talk a lot about carbon fiber and specifically the care and feeding of carbon fiber stuff. Um, And Dave, you recently stumbled upon some interesting news regarding carbon fiber inspection methods. So what did you find? Yeah, I wouldn't say I stumbled upon it. They uh, they found me, but uh, yeah, they, so, you, you stumbled upon it sort of in the sense that someone like you know stuck a stick in your legs and you tripped on it. Yeah, yeah, very much so. <laughs> uh, yeah, an Aussie company I'd been in touch with previously. Uh, I mean, they've they've sort of slowly been doing soft launches over the past year or so. Uh, it's called Cycle Inspect, and and their their mission as a company is to to basically systemize. Uh, an affordable and approachable non-destructive testing system for um, the bike industry. Uh, so yeah, they, they're basically offering, um, they're, they're using ultrasound technology, but they basically have a, a software package that aims to make the data more, more easy to digest. And they have uh, training that comes along with that system uh, takes apparently they've, they're currently just got like a slightly more entry level training at the moment. Um, but yeah, to, to be certified in it, it takes about eight to 10 hours of lessons. Uh, and there is some experts that they, uh, have one-on-one with. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's kind of just an, an interesting system because currently if you want a bike to be ultrasounded, there's only a small handful of carbon fiber experts that you can send it to. And it often means being without a bike for a, a few weeks. It means, typically disassembling it into a frame and then and then shipping that off and having it checked. So like Ruckus Composites in the US does that. Uh, Raul Lucia in Australia is probably the the pioneer of it. Um, but yeah, it it's not accessible. And a lot of people tend to look at the cost of doing it and the, the expense of not having their bike and, and sort of end up just chancing it, right? Like they, they just go, oh, well, it doesn't look broken or I'm just going to you know, what's the worst that can happen uh-huh. and they'll just run it. And it's, and, and that's an incredible, incredibly dangerous thing. So yeah, so cycle inspect, they've actually partnered with uh, the university of new South Wales and they're doing, uh, they're trying to do a study that looks into, they're trying to find out how many potentially dangerous carbon bikes are out on the roads today. Uh, it remains very interesting, interesting to me to see how they'd actually go about doing that. Um, it's obviously they've only just launched the study, but yeah, I think along with Cycle Inspect, uh, as they roll out their technology and as they collect the data from anyone that they train, uh, I think they will probably end up having a relatively large pool of data to to base this all on. So do we have any sense as to how widespread they either anticipate or want to have this technology spread out to? Yeah, I mean, they, they want it in bike shops. They want it in, in large bike shops or even small like one one man band like Zach style shops uh they want that that mechanic to be able to confidently scan a bike look at say something that's external damage or or something that they don't feel all that safe about maybe there's been a crash and they want to inspect the fork uh and actually come away with being able to make a decision as to whether continue to ride or to you know 
basically involve uh, someone else, like a carbon repairer, and say, like, you know, I'm not sure, like, I've found something, I'm not sure, but I, and recommend to the customer that they send the bike off. Uh, and yeah, it's basically just a, another level of, say, like the tap test that that's currently done. Um, it's basically just adding more, more evidence to that. It's, it's a more professional look at that. It's a more, yeah, it's just a more detailed analysis than what the tap test possibly could, ever could do. So, yeah, they, they definitely want to roll this out. Um, and at the same time, I think they're, they're trying to work with like insurance companies to start uh, recognizing the dealers that they train that they can then do um, yeah insurance claims in shops. Because I don't know what the case is in the US, but in Australia, there's some insurance companies that if you crash a carbon fiber bike, they will only pay you out for that bike after you take the chance of stripping it down and sending it off to someone like Raul Lucia who will ultrasound the frame if it's cracked the insurance company pays out if it's not cracked you pay the fee for having it scanned oh wow um so it's kind of like this this risky thing for the customer to do and so i think cycle inspect is potentially coming into this from like a, a point of view of being like well if we can do it in the dealer then that removes a lot of the risk to the customer hmm. streamlines I mean, it in concept this seems like a good thing right in theory yes yeah, in concept, uh, I guess my fear is that the you know Raul Lucia has a lifetime of experience. The likes of Raul Lucia and and Ruckus Composites again, like Sean Small, there is you know he's a mechanical engineer again. He's he's dedicated his life to to knowing what to look for and uh, really being able to analyze these things. And my worry is that someone that's had eight to ten hours of training might get a false level of confidence in saying what is and what isn't safe. Uh, I think Cycle Inspect have some pretty clear guidelines on not saying things or, or not approving frames that they're not confident in, um, and they they obviously have uh, experts on tap that that you're meant to consult when you're not sure. But but yeah, that's that's just my worry is that um, egos are a thing in in with anyone, but no. they do definitely exist in the bike industry amongst mechanics and. That's sort of my worry is that you might get a yeah, a mechanic who who thinks of themselves as a carbon expert after a, a week of training. And I think too, like it has to be super idiot proof. Like particularly if they're trying to get in bigger high volume shops, like peak season, they they want to get bikes in and out as quickly as possible. They're not taking the time to like ultrasound a bike, right? And then there's the whole yeah. aspect of is this something bike shops want? Like, do they want to be liable for saying Hey, we scan this bike. It's not broken, and then it goes out the door, and then it cracks and fails. Right? Like, is that something that the average bike shop wants to even be responsible for, or is it easier just to be like, we don't touch it, send it off to this carbon repair place, and let them let them determine? Yeah, yeah. Another question too is even if Cycle Inspect is successful in rolling this out to whatever degree, um, yeah, a lot of times. Raul in particular, if you if you follow him on Instagram, he is looking for he is looking for damage for customers who have asked him to look for for stuff after a crash, that sort of thing. But he also finds a lot of manufacturer defects straight from the factory. Mm -hmm. So yeah. uh it would be really interesting to see what that sort of return rate or like defect rate is when more people are looking for this sort of thing. You know, what if you have a bike that has never been crashed at all or has never been in any sort of like what if you have a brand new bike straight off the floor yeah. that someone who cycle inspect has trained 
determines that there's a defect in something, what do you do then? Yeah, and that's that's definitely a, a big question. And Michael Briggs, who works with Cycle Inspect, uh, he's the fa- he's actually the founder of it. Uh, he he brought that up himself. You know, he's like, we don't have the layup schedules from these manufacturers, uh, and that's that's something that I think as a company that they're hoping to get more in, involved with, where they they actually get a better understanding of what is a defect and what isn't a defect. Uh, but yeah, I, I think it's it's certainly something that this technology is going to open up and and probably create more awareness around as as more bikes get scanned. Um, and I think hopefully my my optimistic view is that manufacturers will start putting more effort into their quality control, knowing that there's there's you know an increasing number of the bike amount. Sorry, there's an increasing amount of the bike industry capable of looking inside these frames without without uh, just destructing them. Yeah, well, that that's what I was going to say too. Just it, it it would only be good for the end consumers to have more eyeballs on these th- on these things, even if some of those eyeballs might be making incorrect conclusions potentially. But just the fact that more people are watching is generally a good thing. Yeah, uh, and speaking of like people watching, um, I guess yeah, now's a as good of a time as any to mention ruckus components uh, composites that I'd I'd mentioned before uh, in America. They're they're based in Oregon, but uh, they themselves have heavily invested in new testing technology, which is pretty exciting to see. Uh, they've got both destructive and non-destructive new machines, and uh, yeah, they're they're very much on a on a path to figure out. Uh, common questions over over failure modes but also to work with industry partners and, and players to figure out um yeah more more safe use of composites so the, uh, i'd say yeah cycle inspector's doing some really cool stuff from a i guess a, a more attainable and um widespread point of view but yeah you've got the likes of ruckus and and ral sort of still pushing the industry in a in a from a real true professional level as well uh, Dave, do you have any any idea how much Cycle Inspect might charge a shop or whoever to go through this whole training process and what that equipment might cost? I don't have pricing, unfortunately. They do have price tiers, so there's like they they offer just the training. So where uh, I believe it basically leaves a shop with a level of um, knowledge over visual testing, uh, and then they also have like outright. But, you know, buy the buy the package outright, or or basically um, pay month to month. Um, I don't have price pricing, but I mean they've got uh, their website advertises uh, the profit that as a shop you can make by by having their system. <laughs> um, so yeah, I, I'd imagine it's not cheap. Um, but yeah, that's one to find out still. Well, I guess the I guess where I'm going with this is I wonder what it would take for us to get you trained up with this stuff. Hmm. Interesting. Oh, I might have to look into that. Okay. Please do. I think I think this would be worth you looking into for sure. Let's uh let's see where where we can go with this. <clears throat> I I certainly would not be opposed to uh carbon fiber bikes passing through Dave Rome's hands getting a little bit of an extra special look. Mm. I already don't write a lot um by overthinking <laughs> everything. I, this is not going to help with that. Oh, that's a good point. That's a good point. Well, <laughs> all right. Well, why don't you just go ahead and look into it and we'll we'll decide then yeah cool <laughs> okay all right well uh that's about all we have for the news on this show today so Ooh, can i sorry can i add one more point where because i was i was chatting with both um 
Sean Small from uh, Ruckus and and Michael Briggs for for this segment. And uh, Sean mentioned something. I asked him like some early findings that he had uh, come across with his new um, destructive test machine, which is basically a, a very uh, it's something capable of creating uh, eleven thousand pounds of force. It's um, a big hammer. Yeah. Uh, and what they found is that, uh, just that carbon fiber is stronger than they realize basically. But, uh, even though they're carbon fiber experts, uh, a one, a, a tube with a 1.1 millimeter wall thickness, uh, maxes out their machine. That's capable of creating 11,000 pounds of force. I mean, a 1.1 mil wall thickness for carbon fiber yeah. is pretty thick. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, I mean, that's. So yeah, they have to send it off to a third party with a bigger machine to to break that tube. But what's interesting is that uh, once they create a rivnut sized hole in the tube, uh, the force is decreased by almost fifty percent. Oh, that's not so. Uh, the lesson of that is don't go drilling random holes in your carbon frame to make room for cables and di two wires and all that. It's, I mean, that, uh, that, that's why Craig Calfee for ages and ages. Uh, wasn't putting in traditional water bottle bolts <clears throat> on his frames, right? There, he was, he was mm-hmm. gluing on like little threaded stubs. Yep. Yeah. So yeah. So if you are going to drill holes in your steerer, um, send it to a professional. Have it reinforced. Uh, don't do it yourself. Oh God. Yes. Please don't drill holes in your steerer tube. Please. All right. Anyway. Anyway. Yeah, Dave, look into that, please. And uh, I'd be curious to hear what you hear back. Um, but I'm also wondering, uh, any of you guys have anything on your minds this week? Probably. I'm, I'm going to go ahead and ditch the whole like on your mind and over the head of your family thing because realistically, pretty assumed. much this entirely pretty much this, <laughs> this entire show is generally going to be over the heads of our families. So we're just going to oh, take that. As I a like given. it still. I like it. <laughs> uh, Zach, Zach, what you got? I mean, I've been thinking about crank width. I feel like you guys touched on it maybe an episode or two ago, but I feel like whether on gravel bikes and mountain bikes. Like crank spindles and arm, like the width of where the pedals sit, everything's getting wider. Just keeps getting wider and wider and wider. And like your hips and knees and everything have stayed the same. So I feel like we're sacrificing like good pedaling dynamics for an easy way to like fit more tire and gearing on your bike. Well, what I found kind of odd. Um, so you know, I mentioned SRAM transmission earlier. One of the sort of side effects, I guess, of them moving to a wider chain line on the transmission stuff is that the, uh, the Q factors have gotten wider. Um, what I am curious about, however, is for the bikes that I've ridden so far with transmission, um, the Q factors are wider. However, it also just seems to be just that there's just more space between the chainstay and the crank arm. And it seems like they could have kept it narrower. So I, what I'm wondering is... And it's just more flexibility for bike manufacturers. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah, it, it, it gives it. you like a wider design window, essentially. Yeah. But I'm curious how many companies are actually using the full extent of that window. Mm. Um, because I think pushing the chain line out makes a lot of sense. Um, because there does seem to be room for that. Um, but it almost seems like the crank arms themselves don't need to be spaced out as wide as they are. I mean, like the problem, yeah. too, is like even on whether on a mountain bike or gravel bike or whatever, like even if you get your, you short spindles or you move the cleats so that your shoes sit more inboard, like the rear ends have also gotten wider. So then you have to deal with issues of heel rub. And like yeah. I, I recently sold a Cannondale gravel bike that I really liked, but it had a proprietary bottom bracket with an extra long spindle. And like, that was too much to annoy. Like, I think some people, it doesn't really bother, but like if you're particular about fit and positioning, 
like I sold that bike because the cranks were too wide. Yeah, I think I think generally speaking, uh, from the bike fitters I've spoken to, the general trend is that wider is better for a lot of people. Like the a lot of bike fitters put um, their customers onto like the the Shimano wider spindle pedals, for example, which adds four mil. Uh, so I think there is a a trend to accepting a wider Q factor than what I guess history tells us. Uh, but I'd also say that like SRAM transmission is probably pushing it almost too far from a bike fitter point of view it's you know we're we're talking about four mil each side whereas compared to a road bike i mean transmission is what like 10 mil wider each side uh so yeah it's i'm with you i think yeah we're not making use of the real estate that that crank provides i think some brands probably will but yeah i think too like it's almost like the like say stram and shimano are making it easier for the bike brands to be like mm-hmm. here's an easy way to tuck the tire in with short chain stays and a pivot and all that like rather than the bike company having to do problem solving of like yeah this is the crank that we have to work with how can we maximize all of the things that we want to to tick right like short chain stays with big tire clearance like we've figured out how to do that on other bikes and now all of a sudden like oh we have to make the cranks wider so that we can fit these same tires right like i don't know it just doesn't make yeah. sense to me uh, I also think there's we're probably in a weird time at the moment where bike brands are still having to design for SRAM and Shimano, at least in the mountain right. bike space. Yep. And the Shimano cranks don't allow as much room. Uh, at least I haven't, I, I'm not aware that they do. So you kind of like bike brands are still kind of constrained by what Shimano is doing, even though SRAM has opened up the window so so wide. What I find it particularly funny, the you know the timing of all this too, considering that. A lot of mountain bike brands now, if anything, they're actually going longer with their chain stays, mm-hmm. um, at least at, at least on bigger sizes anyway, um, because for ages and ages and ages, it seems like everyone was trying to tuck in the rear wheel as close as you could possibly get it with the idea that- It's good for wheelies. Yeah, you know, <laughs> with the idea that like, oh, it makes for better climbing, when mm. the reality is it's not necessarily that good for everyone, and certainly for mm. like super steep stuff, as as Hex just so succinctly mentioned, uh, it kind of is just a good way to loop out. Um, yeah. So, it, yeah, it's it's funny that we're putting all this effort into making all this room on mountain bikes um, for- bigger tires and chain rings and that sort of thing when we're kind of seeing a lot of frame design go in the opposite and like direction. like tires but I haven't guess, mm. gotten massively bigger. Like on the mountain bike side, everyone's running like a 2.3 to a 2.5. Well, and like yeah, we tried, stabilized. We, we tried yeah. much bigger tires already, right? right? Like, like the we've whole, kind of yeah. settled on thing. this is the size, but yet like drivetrains and everything keep getting pushed out and pushed out and pushed yeah. out. Yep. Yep. And, and I, I, again, I point it back to e-bikes. Yeah, right. but that doesn't like, explain like the gravel mid-drive, side of things. Like why, motors. why is gravel? Why are we pushing cranks out for gravel? Then, it, well, but I think gravel still is kind of the wild west to it to a large extent. Whereas, I think we have already experimented with much bigger tire sizes on mountain bikes. And Dave, as you say, we are still using. I would say even e bikes still aren't really going any bigger than like two six. Um, but uh, you know, on gravel, that I feel like a lot of companies are still kind of trying to figure out what the sort of like, you know, quote unquote normal geometry is or what the like most standard tire would be. It does seem like people are pretty happy with 40s, maybe 45s and, you know, 50 seems well, like, like a bridge too I guess far. To like use my bikes, for example. So I had this Cannondale, right? And that had these proprietary extra wide spindle and all of this. And basically I think you could fit a 42 or 45 is the max, right? 
and you couldn't put a road crank on it. You couldn't even put a normal like gravel crank on it because it was just too wide. And now I have a crux, which you can fit a normal road crank in, has more or less similar geometry, and has the same tire clearance with a road crank. So to me, it's like, why, if we can do it with a road crank, why do we need to have a proprietary extra wide, extra wide spindle and crank and all of these things just to essentially have the same result when it's possible with a normal setup? Well, in gravel, I mean, it's you can do it with a road crank to an extent, but there are still people that want to go wider on their tires. Than yeah, what, but that's like than what the minority, right? Like, yeah, most people are plenty fine with, let's say, the crux with the tire clearance that that yeah, has. Yeah, sure. Matt, yeah, you can fit 42s or 45s on, and like that's plenty of tire for 98 percent mm-hmm. of the gravel market. Yeah, yeah. but uh, yeah, we have a drivetrain yeah. built for that two percent that's on all yeah. of the bikes now. Yeah, but I think it's kind of like what Dave was saying that that bike brands are in kind of a weird space right now because they do to a large extent have to design around some of those extremes. Um, partially maybe just to say that they can, they, that they can, it's sort of just like, you know, the usual yeah. one upmanship, one upmanship. Um, and you know, if you have a gravel bike where it's advertised like, Oh, we can clear a 50. Then for a lot of people, people will consider that just to be better. Right. And then right? run a 38. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Um, but yeah, my, my e-bike point wasn't necessarily regarding tire width. It was regarding, uh, motor placement, right? You know, like the, the width of the motor is, is kind of forced wider Q factors. And I think SRAM are kind of like, well, why don't we just make all of our cranks closer to that that width? Uh, but yeah, all of this is just reminding me that I've had on back order for a few months with Shimano, some XTR narrow spindle pedals to try overcome the extra width on some of these bikes. Uh, and Obviously, Shimano's not making enough of them, the fact that I've had them on back order for so long. <laughs> yes. So, yeah, I guess my my related to qu- request to all of this is we're not going to see Q factors all of a sudden get narrower. So, can more pedal brands make narrow spindles? But then you still, I mean, I guess if you have larger feet, you still end up with heel rub. Right. Yeah, it's fine, but I'm just wanting something for myself. So. Yeah. <laughs> Again, everyone should ride a 54-centimeter integrated aero road bike <laughs> yeah. so they can fit it in their <laughs> travel case. And everyone should squeeze into a 43 shoe in a regular fit so they can ride narrow spindle pedals. pedals. Done, done. Yeah. yeah, so so easy. Well, Dave, yeah. I'm glad you've kind of figured out the whole bike industry for us. Yeah, yeah, no worries. Uh, I do so, have a set of those pedals, pedals by the way, though, and you're going to have to pry them out of my cold, dead hands. Ah, damn it. But yeah, <laughs> I'd love for Shimano to make an XT version as well. But uh, uh yeah. Can you buy Think about the, how just much... the spindle, like the internals separate, and put them in a different? I can't find where I can get the spindles sure. from. Because you sure. can buy normal spindles, like as a spare part. But I've or, never looked to see if you mm. get the short ones as a spare part. Or mm. surely there's a sketchy aftermarket titanium company I've looked, oh, yeah. shorter length. Uh, yeah, I've looked. Uh, Danger Home recently posted one, which hasn't become available yet, which looked, I think it was Medi. Uh, yeah, I think... That looked intriguing to me, but yeah, so far the, a lot of the dodgy titanium ones are, are regular with, um, and I've actually, I've grooved out enough titanium spindles in my, in my time that I'd rather not spend my own money doing that. See what, what could go wrong, Dave? Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, should we do a PSA? Actually, no, hold on. I got something on my mind too. Oh, okay. All yeah. Right. I was skipping mine, but anyway. <laughs> Mine's not going to be very long, though, I think. Uh, so I, I have been thinking a lot, and I actually have been thinking about this for a long time. Just um, I, I'm annoyed by a lot of water bottle tops. 
because of how much fluid is left in the bottle after you can't squirt any out. I've about this before. I, I may have. I may have, but uh, it, if I have, it hasn't been for a while. And seeing as how it's hot in summer is, here, I'm ready to rant about it again. Yeah, It's um, a very good first world problem. It yeah. is a very good first world problem. So, like, you can't get that last little bit of water out well, without figure, taking the you, cap well, off. Yeah, if, if the thing is, if the bottle is advertised <laughs> as like a 500 ml bottle, but like there's 20 mls left in it, or like even 10, 15, like it, that's kind of annoying because like you can shake the bottle, you like you know that fluid's in there. You just take the top off. And then I know, you drink but it. like you know, but you want to be able to just like squirt it out. So some bottle, I have found some bottles that are definitely better than others. So, um, like my favorite plastic bottles, at least anywhere, are those elite flies. Like the, the super light ones, just mainly because the the, the top design is such that you can basically the, the get the rest every of the bottle, bottle is so bad. Like all of those Euro bottles, you can't actually like those. I do actually. They're I, so I, bad. They're so flimsy and just I mean, horrendous. I, I, I don't use metal cages, so uh, the, the the cages that I use those bottles in, they hold just fine. They're so nice and squeezy. Like they're the water awful. squirts out really quickly. Like the we tops, have a bunch like, of those, and the they're top, just the worst. <laughs> the, to the, use. the tops I can pull off completely and put everything in the dishwasher. Everything gets nice and clean and dry. Oh. I mean, they're, the elite ones are better than the tax ones because those are just like a fully plastic nozzle and those are just awful. But yes, I will agree with that one. The Euro bottle, though, is just bad. Mm. We're going to have to agree to disagree on this one. Mm. Dave, you got a I PSA? Think, yeah, I do. Um, I will skip my on my mind. I'll, I'll save that for next week because it's not urgent. Uh, PSA is uh, seeing on our member in the Discord channel on the Escape Collective Discord is... Uh, forever a lot of chat about chainware uh and it's a topic that i've covered in detail twice now uh and third time's the charm like, dave it <laughs> seems like i might have to do a third because the <laughs> second time i covered it i thought i was done with that topic but that article is now no longer available so uh yeah anyway chainware uh it seems like a lot of people are still potentially using the wrong tool to measure their their chain width and by that what i mean is up until about probably five, six years ago, uh, chainware tools had, uh, most of them had two markings, which were 0.75% wear and 1% wear. And the 0.75% wear is, was kind of intended for like 10 and 11 speed drivetrains or more nine and 10 speed drivetrains. And the 1% wear was really intended for like older track chains and um, uh, like seven and eight speed chains. And and why this matters is that uh, the teeth of the cogs have gotten narrow and they're more susceptible to wear than they ever were. And I truly believe that 0.75% wear is kind of like your your worst case scenario. It's it's the the really like I believe you're you're leaving it too late. If you have a chain checker that measures 0.75% wear on a 11 speed, 12 speed, 13 speed drivetrain, and it drops in at that point you've already left it too late. You've probably worn out your cassette by that point. Uh, and so my preference is always to run, uh, find a chain checker that measures 0.5% wear and replace your chain at that point because at that point you haven't quite worn the chain long enough that it's it's no longer sitting. Uh, yeah, it's still sitting in the in the base of the, the tooth, basically, and it's not wearing the edges of your cassette and, and chain ring. Uh, so yeah, a bit more... Replacing your chain a bit more frequently is is my advice, and and my worry is that a lot of people have chain tools that are are, are making you leave it for too long. The other point to that is uh, the latest SRAM chains, the flat top chains, 
um, they do actually require different tools again because the roll is a different size. So, uh, yeah, again, a lot of the chain tools that people already own will, will give you a false reading on those new chains so that you need to get a chain tool that's, that measures uh, backside to backside. Oh, sorry, opposite sides of the rollers. So there's Park Tool do one, Pedro's do one, Union now does does one. Zach. Stream also does one. And I have also does one. It's terrible. I have the Pedro's one, the Park one, the Stram one, I think another one. Yeah. And I have yet to find one that measures a flat top chain at the point where it should be replaced without having worn the small ring or the aluminum cog on the cassette. Very interesting. Okay. Yeah. And maybe yeah, that's the, just a location problem because people climb around here. Yeah. But almost every time the chain, it doesn't drop in all the way. It's not where you would be like, okay, this is worn. But you put a new chain on and the small chain ring is worn out and it grinds and have, it skips in the largest cog in the back. Have you have you tried one way, say, with the Pedros, it only dropped into the 0.5% wear and not the 0.75% wear and you changed the chain then and it was still a problem? Uh, yeah, you, I don't remember. I've not used the pagers one in a bit. I don't remember the markings on that side, but mm-hmm. I know like usually I just replace it bef- like at a certain point where it drops in, like yeah. kind of a, like it's not where it says it should be replaced yet, but like it falls yeah, in it's a little, a little bit. Yeah. The yeah. SRAM one, SRAM officially recommend replacing their chains at 0.75%. And that's what their chain tool is based on. Um, it's too late. It's. It's a very it's a very uh, clever way of selling more group sets, like more drivetrain right. components. I don't Which think is, that's their intention. I think they genuinely believe that it's it's fine to replace a chain at that point. Uh, but in in my experience and like the experience of zero friction cycling and and what you're saying, Zach, it it is too late. It yeah. you can wear. Because then out it's unfortunate because you're like, okay, this bike is scheduled in. We're going to put a new chain on it, and then you put the new mm-hmm. chain, and you're like, actually, your small chain ring is worn out. So now you need a whole new front chainring combo thing, power meter, yeah. all of it. And then it's like yeah. a whole nother couple of days because you have to send it in to get the discounted one and all of like it's just it's just annoying. Yeah, because it seems like at least for mountain bike drivetrains, we're at the point now where the chains have gotten so durable that it is no longer it that's no longer the drivetrain component that we're, that's wearing out the quickest. Right. And unfortunately, it is the one that well, I guess the chain rings, I guess, are usually a little bit cheaper. But you know, it, it used to be that the you know the chain wore out the fastest, and that was the least expensive to replace. But now, what's wearing out the quickest is the, is the cassette, and that is far and away the most. Which expensive Which still part. blows my mind that like that's what's happening, and we're still using aluminum for cogs on the cassette, like because that wears down faster. And I don't know. I understand it's the largest cog, and it should wear down like much slower than the rest of it the smaller cogs, but that's not in reality when you're climbing and you're grinding up some hill. What, like, what or I, like when they first came out with these cassettes that have the machined aluminum or machined steel and then an aluminum largest cog. And they're like, we're going to make it so you can replace just the largest one. Like if that was actually reality, that would be really cool. Right. Cause that never actually yeah. really happened. Did never it? happened. No, which is unfortunate yeah. because if that, if that had actually happened, then that would be really viable. Um, yeah. and that's know, something like Shimano and and Campagnolo historically have offered uh you could buy pieces of cassettes right you know for super yeah. record and Juris, you can buy like just the top half of a cassette um uh, but these latest like transmission cassettes for example they don't allow for that because they're made as one piece yeah well they're at least assembled <clears> as one piece i mean they used to be for a while at least with original um like with original xx1 stuff 
um, you did have some aftermarket companies that were offering mm-hmm. replaceable or re- replacement largest cogs. Uh, I guess in those cases, it was mostly just so you can get a little bit more range, but that was still a nice convenient way to kind of get a little bit more life out of a cassette, which otherwise was probably running just fine, except for that aluminum sprocket. Yeah, I mean, the, the amount of road cassettes that I've had to get rid of for people because one largest cog was worn out and the rest of the cassette was fine. It was just mm-hmm. like mind-blowing. Yeah. But and it's just yeah, a, bit a lot of sad. waste there. So like yeah. I normally recommend people if you're training and it's just like these are your training wheels or whatever, you're not racing, you don't care about saving 50 grams, get the rival cassette because mm-hmm. it's all steel. Yeah. Yeah. And that's again, like we spoke about GX earlier, that's positive because there's now a cheaper cassette in the range that you right. can use with yeah. with a small weight penalty, <laughs> but no other real disadvantage. Um, but yeah, chainwear, uh, don't leave it as long as manufacturer chain manufacturers claim you to leave it and use a good chain loop that doesn't collect grit and grind your cassette down into a, an expensive paste. Uh, uh, a, a buddy yeah. of mine on, on our Tuesday night ride, he, uh, he, he cracked out a bottle of Triflow last night to oh, lose his yeah. chain. Nice. And, oh, I just, I just cringed. Mm. It, it just hurt his me. chain was quiet though. Briefly. <laughs> Uh, it, yeah. it hurt me. It just hurt. That's a good one. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Yeah. All right. Well, let's go ahead and wrap up the show. Dave, I know you've got a train to catch because you've got some, you've got a, a training seminar they need to go to. Um, so uh, just a quick reminder, if you have not already become a member of the Escape Collective, please head over to escapecollective.com and consider signing up. We've got a whole bunch of different tiers that you can look at. Uh, if you are already a member, thanks again. And again, please tell your buddies about Escape Collective. Um, another thing for this podcast in particular, you may have noticed that there are no ads whatsoever. We've never had them on Geek Warning. Um, so if you like what you're listening to, and if you're not paying for it, please consider paying for it, please please pretty please uh and at the very least if you are not yet willing to become a member uh at least head over to itunes and give us a rating and review because that also gives us a hand uh so after this after this podcast goes live i expect to see at least at least 10 or 12 fresh review fresh reviews or else well, i mean we're not gonna go on strike or anything but please please I'm, I'm, I'm asking very nicely anyway that'll do it for us for today we'll see you next week thanks for listening 